Welcome to the Weird Warriors Podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we will be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 39. But first, Rich... Our esteemed co-host, as you well know, has some retroactive history for you. Our first recording since GI Sweethearts aired, and the results are in. Overwhelmingly positive. Yes, we will be doing this on an annual basis. Max wins. <sighs> Causes me pain. <laughs> that said, our first romance comic and I, of course, screwed up date night. In the episode, it was stated that Duty Bound to Deceive and My Impulsive Promise were originally printed in Love Comics 9 and 31, respectively. They were actually reprinted from Love Letters 9 and 31, respectively. The Dear John letter is no doubt on its way. My Impulsive Promise is actually the cover story from Love Letters 31. The cover has been added to the album for that episode. To make matters worse, my challenge coin comment was not from episode zero, but from our first Road Warriors episode, where we went to Sam Glansman's home and grave with Sue Glansman. What can I say? Love makes one flustered. As of this recording, voting is underway for the fan-selected special mission based on our intel reports. To refresh everyone's memories, I went back and added said reports to the corresponding issue in the album. The update from our last episode for who the next comic creators the show will help out will be has two answers. The first is Rick Estrada. We see him for the first time in the pages of WWT in issue 40, and we already saw him in the pages of Blitzkrieg from our next five special mission. His find a grave page didn't have a photo of his marker in the Provo City Cemetery in Provo, Utah. I put out a request, and it does now. Check the album. And I, of course, must do humorous self-owns when required. I committed the utterly heinous sin of accidentally posting Bob Kane's of all people photo and a remembrance post of Bill Finger, thanks to a misleading photo caption online. In my meanderings of creator pages on Find a Grave, I realized someone had posted the same photo of Finger on Robert Conacher's page. I think there's only that one good photo of Bill out there. I posted a correct photo and sent word to the poster of the Finger photo of his hair, and he removed it. The DC Warbook Hunt is one step closer to completion. Just picked up our army at war 23. Three to go. And have you ever looked up a celebrity online to see if they were still alive, discovered they were, and had them die days later? You ever feel responsible for that? I've killed Harry Morgan, Olivia de Havilland, and now Raquel Welch. A cheap vinyl pillow of her was my ad call out for Weird War Tales number six. And less than a week after I reminded a co-worker that's enrolled in a Deadpool that Jimmy Carter was still alive, it was announced that Carter had entered hospice care. Step right up, folks, and send me your Deadpools now. I'll charge a reasonable fee. Rich Fulham, mm -hmm. Harbinger of Doom. Let it be known. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the Intel report. Rover Red Charlie, the six-issue mini from Avatar from 2014. Written by Garth Ennis, illustrated by Michael 
dip, dip a scale. When a worldwide plague wipes out humanity, what happens to man's best friend? Charlie was a helper dog, and he was good at it. Now he and his friends Rover and Red must escape the bloody city and find their way in this strange, masterless new world. Yeah, that one was deep. I was talking to the guy that runs Aquilonia Comics, and he said that was an unexpected sellout. That, that one moved. Yeah, how, how would your pets do post-apocalypse without us? It's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting story, actually. Man, how have I, of all people, never read that one? I mean, I know there's a million answers to that question, but that that's like tailor-made for me, man. An animal-centric, post-apocalyptic comic. Oh, yeah, man. You would, you would read this. You would I, love this. I Written by Ennis, for God's sake. I mean, come oh, on. <laughs> oh, that's that's a huge, like, embarrassing gap in in, in my uh, in my personal skein of of comics I should have read. Good lord! Well, I'll be stealing that from you the next time we see each other. <laughs> With the intel report out of the way, we're gonna let y'all digest that information for a minute or two and take a break to play a little podcast promo as we do at the top of the show spread a little love for some other great shows out there and when we come back rich will hit you with the cover detail for the issue at hand just when you thought it was safe to hear our podcast promo JL made you do 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 brave and bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL made JL made do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 JL made the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back, and we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez, and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlook Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JLMay do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic book do 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 Mephisto. Hey, that it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. And we're back. So, as stated before the break, Rich is going to give you the cover details for Weird War Tales number 39. Joe Kubert serving it up for 25 cents. The red WWT is in great contrast to a black background. Under it, fish swirl around a scuba diver in a cave. He's wearing a blue web suit and runs his hands through the loot in a classical chest of sunken treasure. But behind him, a column of skeletal World War II Marines approach from a sunken submarine. Cover date, July 1975. Date of release, April 8th, 1975. Killjoy, no USN on the counting tower of a sub, but yeah, I get it. It's a cover identity thing. Comments and commendations, great Cubert cover. The greens, blues, and yellows of an underwater scene all work real well here. For a split second, one might wonder why there were a bunch of Marines aboard a sub. 
but Carlson's raiders did raid Mackett Island in the Gilbert Island chain from the subs Nautilus and Argonaut on August 17th, 18th, 1942. Both subs made it back, but 30 of the 211 raiders were killed, captured, and executed, or went missing. The remains of 19 of them were discovered and brought home in 2000. So take that mini history minute into account when looking at this rare aquatic themed cover. The rightmost Marine even has shadows of swimming fish on his tunic. Cubert in his prime. Hell yeah. A second top notch silent Cubert cover in a row. I will take it. The circular spotlight of the hole in the hull of the treasure ship frames things perfectly. And as Rich mentioned, I, I love how the little fish are just all quietly swimming in one direction, out of there. They're like, oh, I'm not sticking around for this again. All the blood, and then the sharks come, and we gotta wait for all that business to settle down. Jeez. The plant life growing on the inside of the ship is a great touch, too. It's just an excellent cover to get us started. So let's see how the rest of the issue pans out, where Rich will hit you with the details on the first story in the issue. The Kangaroo Court Martial. Seven pages. Script by George Cash Dan. Art by Bill Drought. Every soldier, it is said, has his breaking point. That moment when sheer terror can turn him from a hero into a craven coward. But under the glorious rules of warfare, the mere suggestion of cowardice is a punishable offense, as one GI discovered during the Kangaroo Court Martial. PFC Arnold Plunkett is Colonel Wells Orderly, and he despises every minute of it. Pack my gear, Plunkett. Shine my shoes, Plunkett. Bring my child, Plunkett. I'm not a soldier. I'm a delivery boy. Relaying movement orders to a company commander, some of the other soldiers mock him. Don't forget the colonel's toothbrush, Plunkett, or he's liable to assign you to combat. Plunkett snaps and charges the others, who enjoy seeing gopher boys temper. Colonel Wells reprimands Plunkett. We're supposed to fight the Japs, not each other. Old comics man, Bell. Plunkett hears whispered taunts as he follows Wells into a private area. Tactical conditions had required a time change to the upcoming counterattack. He's ordered to get to division headquarters on the double to report that change to the commanding general. Absolutely no one else. Plunkett salutes and runs off. Now he's a messenger boy, he muses as he hurries through the jungle. Expendable. Why risk a combatant with good old reliable Plunkett? A Japanese rifle butt to the back of his head abruptly ends Plunkett's thoughts. When he awakes, he's deep behind enemy lines. The officer interrogating him knows the Plunkett had been hurrying to his divisional headquarters, perhaps with an important message. When and where is the counterattack going to take place? But Plunkett only offers his name, rank, and serial number. We have painful ways to make you talk private. Think it over. Lying on the ground in a prison hut, Plunkett does think it over. Why should I risk my neck to save theirs? But then the ghostly form of Colonel Wells appears, standing behind a table with four other ghostly GIs. The court-martial will come to order, Wells says. PFC Plunkett, you are accused of revealing vital secrets to the enemy. Plunkett is shocked. What are you talking about? I didn't tell him anything. They're threatening to torture it out of me. Exactly, and we don't trust you. You're unhappy, and we'll give the Japs the information to save your own skin. We'd be sitting ducks. A vision of a bloody ambush appears before them. Despite Plunkett's repeated assurance that he wouldn't tell the Japanese, 
Wells doesn't believe him and sentences him to death for contemplating cowardice and betrayal. He will die the same way we all would have died. Another vision appears of Wells and Plunkett in battle, and Wells is bayoneted from behind. Suddenly, a Japanese tank bursts through the brush and crushes the screaming Plunkett under its treads. Meanwhile, the real Colonel Wells is informed that Plunkett had never arrived at headquarters. He'd probably been killed or captured. All Wells could do at this late hour was hope Plunkett wouldn't crack. At the Japanese camp, three Japanese soldiers stare in shocked horror at Plunkett's ruined body. Although all four Wells vessels were intact, the American had apparently been run over by a tank. How is it possible? The Japanese officer muses, only the gods know the answer, just as they alone know if this soldier would have betrayed his comrades. Killjoy, the POW pajamas. Anyone captured in the field would still be wearing their uniform this soon after being caught. Drought is probably channeling the Im images of U.S. POWs from Vietnam that were always being shown on television in PJs. Saigon would fall the month this issue came out, by the way. All right. Comments and commendations, I'll kick it off and say that you all know by now that I have a special fondness for the skeletal host panels in these stories. And the one that opens this issue is just so damn charming. I mean, look at him. Leaning forward all casual in his judge's robes, brandishing his gavel all carefree and whatnot. It's just great. It kind of gives me that Fred Gwynn from My Cousin Vinny vibe, you know, decades before the movie would be made. But that's that's the image that triggers in my head. Now, Bill Drought is a super solid artist that I've been coming to appreciate a lot more as we go back through these, these issues in the series. And he has a finely tuned sense of storytelling throughout these pages, knowing when to drop out the backgrounds for focus and then layer them in to set the scene, etc. There's a lot of great panels I could call out, but being me, I'll focus on the weird negatives first. On page four, when Plunkett is brought before the Japanese Inquisitor for questioning, I get a real... John Wayne as Genghis Khan vibe from the guy appearing in panel three. Just not really looking all that correct with his ethnicity is all I'll say. Jumping to the writing for a sec, I'm not even kind of an expert on the cues we might have been meant to pick up on otherwise. So until the colonel mentions the Japs on page two, panel five, I wasn't even sure which war this was in the first place. Not the best job at establishing time and place there, Georgie boy, at least not for someone like me. And did it strike anyone else as weird that Plunkett has stark white hair? It gave the whole story an oddly misplaced Johnny Quest vibe for me, like this was some relative of Race Bannon's getting bossed around. All that said, drought really comes through in the hallucinatory court-martial sequence. Page five, panel two, with the blurry heat mirage background that you can almost hear buzzing away and the weird open pit-like eye sockets of the ghostly kernel on the same page. Panel four and on page six, panel two, are creepy as all get out. However, the ending was a bit much for me. I would have liked it better if Plunkett was just all twisted up by his own writhing contortions and passed on from a heart attack or something. The tank treads and actual flattening of his body parts kind of made me roll my eyes a little bit. I like this one, but mostly because the droughts are. And I should mention about the tank thing. Last night, my wife and I just finished watching All Quiet on the Western Front on Netflix. And there's a scene in that where someone gets run over by a French tank. And in that movie, the effects of being run over by a tank are a little more severe than what you see has happened to Plunkett. 
is all I'll say. But yeah, we just finished that flick last night, so I had to add that in. There we go. That's my CNC. Great Twilight Zone-esque story. I feel a bit bad for Plunkett because you don't know if he would have talked or not. Nothing wrong with thinking about it. We've had threat of torture stories in this series before, and no one knows how they'll stand up to it. It's like being under fire until it happens. I mean, look what John McCain went through. The NBA beat him so badly he couldn't raise his arms over his head to get dressed without help for the rest of his life. It's actually Department of Defense policy now that anything a captured service member says or does under torture won't be held against them later. Good art. Good story. High marks. Page 7, panel 5. Plunkett run over. I mean, look at that leg. Damn. Compare it to panel 1 on the same page. His arm outstretched the same way as the tank runs him over. Nice touch. Page 5, panel 4. Agreed with Max that the colonel's red sunken eyes are creepy as hell. Page 3, panel 5. The shadows and vegetation as Plunkett is captured. I also like the term gopher used here, which isn't used much anymore. It dates back to the 1930s gangster slang. You know, go for this, go for that. And it morphed. Also agree with Max that Plunkett's white hair was the wrong choice, unless he was a colonel or something, you know, senior NCO, which, you know, he wasn't. And further proof that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I left this comic out during script writing, and my son picked it up to flip through. He who has accompanied us both on our terrific con road warriors missions. He actually made the observation that the tank treads that ran Plunkett over were too close together, and that the tank would have been too small. This got me thinking about the size differences of human versus tank, and you know what? He's right. A regular sized tank would have been too big for both tracks to run him over unless it crushed his head and feet. A killjoy from the support staff. Yeah, we, we've got a we've got a replacement right ready to go. You know, on hand if we need one for either one of us, because uh, Steve is a uh, kind of cut from a similar cloth to one of our hosts here on the show. <laughs> genetic and otherwise. So first story out of the way, even though I had my nitpicks and stuff, I liked it. It was a great start to the issue. Let's see how it continues with the next little story in this issue. It's called Appointments with Doom. It's three pages long. Script is by our stalwart Jack Olek. Pencils by Paul Kirchner. Inks by Tex Blaisdell. Synopsis for our little mini story goes a little something like this. U-boat Capitan Horst Mueller humors his wife by visiting a fortune teller in the closing days of World War II. The teller doesn't understand the figures U-235 that he sees, only that they mean death. Mueller must avoid them. Mueller thinks nothing of it. Even though the Fuhrer believes in astrology, he does not and refuses to be taken by a cheap charlatan. But he is still shocked to discover his new command is the U-235. He does his duty regardless, and seven Allied ships are sunk by her torpedoes. But on October 14th, 1944, her luck runs out. Taking on water after being depth-charged, the U-235 is forced to the surface. As the sub is shot to pieces by the Allied escort vessels, Mueller panics over the prophecy and jumps over the side. The sub explodes and Mueller is the sole survivor. Way to go down with the ship, buddy. Rescued by a German destroyer, Capitan Mueller is sent to Japan as a naval attache for Hitler 
On January 11th, 1945, months later, he hears over the radio that Germany has surrendered and is overjoyed. He had survived the war! Time passed, and Mueller forgot about those fateful figures. He openly mocks the lone American bomber that appears overhead on that summer day and dies never knowing the truth. For the Capitan died in Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, from the blast of a bomb whose core was made of uranium-235. Killjoy coming in. Coming in hot. The real U-235 never went on patrol. It was only used for training. She was sunk on May 14, 1943, at a Kiel, Germany shipyard when struck by U.S. Eighth Air Force bombs, killing two of her crew. Raised, repaired, and restored to service, she was en route to Norway on April 14, 1945, when she was depth-charged and sunk by the German torpedo boat T-17, who believed her to be a British sub. All 46 men aboard were lost. Cursed boat, anyone? By the way, no U-boats were sunk on October 14, 1944. Lots of killjoy in page three, panel three. The colors are wrong or reversed on the Nazi armband and the Japanese meatball flag. And from what I recall reading, the Enola Gay experienced no anti-aircraft fire over target. So those flak bursts surrounding the U.S. bombers shouldn't be there. Little comment and commendations. Yeah, Max already knows this. I've been looking for this story ever since we started doing the show. I remembered reading it for the first time and it just stuck with me for some reason. A solid three-page story, which can be hard to do. The art was less solid, however. I, I like the last panel, which gives you a bit of a day after doomsday vibe with the mushroom cloud and the talking skull in the foreground. But page one, panel three, Mueller just looks like a ghoul. I mean, look at that mouth. Almost comical. Now, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Long ago, I ordered an autographed autobiography of Return of the Enola Gay from Paul Tibbetts website. Tibbetts was the pilot of the Enola Gay, the, the bomber that dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. He died in 2007, and his remains were cremated and scattered so his grave wouldn't become a focal point for the anti-nuke crowd. The same year, I went to the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum's World War II weekend in Reading, Pennsylvania, which always has loads of celebrity vets you can meet. Flying Tigers, Wasps, Tuskegee Airmen, Band Brothers, Indianapolis Survivors, etc. I met Arlie Ermey from Full Metal Jacket at this event and got a handshake and an autograph, but I digress. Theodore Dutch Van Kirk was the navigator of the Enola Gay, and he attended this event. I got him to sign Tibbetts' book, and he commented on seeing that Tibbetts had signed it first. He was the last survivor of the crew when he died in 2014. Photos in the album. This brings me to my grandfather, Ernest Fulham, who I've mentioned on the show before. He was a pioneer in electron microscopy in the early 1940s and knew how to operate only the fourth electron microscope in the country, now on display in a local Schenectady museum. Medically discharged from the Army in 1942 and with, and with such a unique skill set, he found himself working on the Manhattan Project, using the microscope to analyze how barriers reacted to uranium hexafluoride gas a corrosive radioactive material used to enrich uranium for nuclear weapons by separating U-238 from U-235 by the method of gaseous diffusion. Bouncing back and forth between Princeton and Columbia University, he met such men as Albert Einstein and Leslie Groves, the general in charge of the Manhattan Project. Family lore says he had an offer to observe the Trinity bomb test in New Mexico, but as my grandmother was very pregnant with one of my uncles, he decided this trip isn't really necessary, and stayed in New Jersey. 
I dearly wish I could have spoken to him more about his experiences, but a severe stroke took away his ability to speak easily just as I was finding out about his past. He died in 2002. The movie Oppenheimer is due out this July, only a week removed from the date of the Trinity test in New Mexico. Further unrelated sidebar, although he was never credited for it, using electron microscopes, my grandfather also played a key role in helping Albert Claude win the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine in 1974. You can find both their names on papers on the subject as some measure of potential proof. Which brings me all the way back to put a bow on what I think is the first World War II nuclear story in the series. Analyzing all of this for the script makes me like the story even more. My CNC took twice as long as the synopsis did. Hey, it's understandable. Uh, and and Ernie was an amazing dude. I, I obviously met him even uh, after the stroke. But uh, as far as my family history goes, let's see. My One of my grandfathers was, as far as inv- his involvements in war, was too young for World War I, too old to go to World War II, and had a great time chasing women around in the factories while all the other guys were off and uh, actually fighting Hitler and whatnot. And then there was my dad, that guy's son, who lied about uh, being a big hero in Vietnam to me and was really just stationed in Alaska manning radar. So, you know, similar histories here, very similar, you know, big heroes on my side, big, big freaking heroes. Anyway, I'm pretty well split on this one, much as I was on the first story. Still on the balance of the positive, so don't start sighing now. Right away, the opening host logo intro panel, which you know is a sweet spot of mine, you gotta admit, that one's lazy as hell. So they lose big points with me there. The thing looks like an afterthought for Pete's sake, and the following two panels don't do much to make up for it, having an oddly photo-referenced stillness to them, lacking any emotional resonance with the events or dialogue at all. Panel three, however, that Rich called out is just bad enough to be great, in my opinion. The closeness of their faces, the grotesque lipless grimace that Rich mentioned, and most of all, Miller's or Mueller's baby hand, that little tiny disfigured hand that I don't know if he's getting ready to slap her or if he's just, it's, it's just grotesque. It's beautiful. The more I look at that panel, the more I like it. But For the wrong reason, sure, but I'm still getting enjoyment out of it. Before I so much as get off the first page of this story, I gotta say how much I like the whole bottom row here. Is it one panel? Is it two? Who cares? It is great with the burning wreck of an enemy ship panning over to the sheer bloodlust on Mueller's face. I I think it's just excellent work. Page two is fine, but page three has some of the worst and best moments for me. At the top, Mueller has gone from getting pulled out to out of the sea by the Allies to a comfy position in Japan, which Rich corrects me, and in the synopsis you hear, it was a German destroyer that first picked him up. That wasn't clear to me reading the story, so my point still stands. I'm sitting there reading it going, what? How does that happen? The Allies pull him out of the sea, and all of a sudden he's got a comfy gig in Japan? But anyway, regardless, it all gets us to those two final panels which are just delightful to behold. The bright yellow of the atomic blast, the stark black on the figures, and the shredding clothes, followed by that final panel of the devastation. Both panels, to me, have kind of a Richard Corbin-esque feel to them, which y'all know by now I tend to like at default. So there we go. A a nice little three-pager that 
had a lot of texture to it for me, a lot of things I liked, a lot of things I didn't, but it was that makes it all the more interesting. So let's see how the final, how the next, is it the final? Yeah, it's the final. Let's see how the final story and the issue pans out. And uh, since it's longer and stuff, uh, I'll give it to Rich. Yeah, isn't it funny the way that happens? The Spoils of War. Eight pages. Script by the aforementioned Jack Olick. Art by Ruben Yandok, or Rubeny here. After every battle, there are the human vultures, the plunderers eager for booty. If they have to climb over the bones of better men to claim their loot, it matters little to them. To the plunderers, only one thing matters. The spoils of war. Cover story tie-in? Maybe? Possibly? Eh. Night. Benson is a Navy frogman on board a surfaced submarine off the coast of enemy-held island. He sneers at Keone, a local native who tries to warn the Americans about a curse on the lagoon they're about to swim in. Terrible things happen to those that dare do so. Benson obeys his order's command to knock it off, but is disdainful of his authority. Benson is tense, resentful, and uptight. Bad qualities for a UDT man. The Marines are scheduled to hit the beach in the morning, and the underwater defenses had to be knocked out before then. Also, the frogmen had to be back on the sub before dawn, or the Japanese shore batteries would blow them apart. Five men paddle into the lagoon, slip into the water, and head for their assigned sectors. Discovering the entrance to an underwater cave, Benson decides to investigate. When he surfaces inside, he's amazed to discover hundreds of pearls. That must be the real reason the natives have put a taboo on the lagoon. The curse was to protect the pearls hundreds of years ago. They'd probably forgotten all about the pearls, and that meant they were his now. Knowing that daylight was about to arrive, Benson leaves the cave to set his charges, planning to return after the war. But then he realizes if he blows up the Japanese traps, the entrance to the cave will collapse and he'll never be able to get back inside. Greed overwhelms Benson, who dreamed of something like this in his entire life. Nothing was going to take his pearls away from him. He drops the bag holding the charges onto the lagoon floor and swims away. On the surface, the enemy shore guns have started firing on the raft of frogmen when Benson returns and they quickly paddle out of range. But the Marines, depending on a clear path ashore, aren't so lucky. All the other charges explode, but the Marines in Benson's sector are sitting ducks when they run into the Japanese traps. Benson's commander demands to know what had happened. And Benson acts like the charges or timers must have been defective. They can only watch as the Marines are butchered on the beach. The Marines would eventually take the island at high cost. And at a later hearing, Benson was cleared of any wrongdoing, the board believing his excuse of faulty charges. Men had died needlessly, but he still had his dream. The war ends and Benson is discharged. A passage to the South Seas is expensive. Months pass and Benson works as a dishwasher and later on a tramp steamer to earn money for the trip. Finally returning to the island, he hires a boat captain to take him to the lagoon. The captain insists there are no pearls to be found there and repeats the old taboo, but Benson brushes him off. Against his better judgment, he agrees to help a fellow American. On the water, the captain tries to warn Benson one last time, but Benson was too close to quit now. Into the water he dives, past the bleaching bones of his victims, and into the cave. He crows and laughs about his wealth as he fills a sack with pearls. He has it all in his content. But as he begins to return to the surface, he doesn't see a faded khaki sack on the lagoon floor that his swim fin strikes. 
a titanic blast throws a geyser of water high into the air next to the captain's boat. No one can say how or why Benson's old charges exploded. They shouldn't have, but they did. Incredibly, Benson returns to the surface and drags himself into the boat. The captain is shocked to see Benson's legs are smashed and begins to repeat the native's taboo, but the bag clipped to Benson's belt is heavy. Even though he's a cripple, Benson will still have a life of luxury. He pulls out a handful of pearls to show the captain, but is shocked as they begin to blacken and dissolve. So that's your treasure, the captain exclaims. I should have guessed. I'm afraid you traded your legs for nothing. Your treasures are just cave pearls. They form when lime and calcium drip from the ceiling of caves. They look just like real pearls, but when exposed to sunlight, they blacken and turn to dust. Poor Benson. He was no longer laughing at the idea of a curse. Oh, he still wanted to scream that there was no such thing, of course. But what would have been the use? Killjoy. Based on some very quick research on cave pearls, it appears they don't actually blacken and turn to dust when exposed to sunlight. They do eventually become discolored, roughened, and become plain and dull looking in sunlight. But that whole turn to dust and victory to ashes thing was almost required here, so fine. Where did the light in the cave come from? I don't see a flashlight anywhere. And you know, for someone who apparently just has legs blown off, he doesn't seem to be in too much pain. Hopefully he'll bleed out on the way back to shore. But let's back up a bit. Page seven, panel four. Look at the size of that column of water compared to the boat. I'm sorry, but Benson is freaking dead. The concussion alone at that immediate range would have been more than enough to have taken care of this weasel. Yeah, that's that's a damn good point. Uh, <laughs> I'll dive into CNC because I've got kind of a little pseudo history minute baked into this one. So, okay, early on, Benson makes a joke about being queen of the May. It's an accidentally timely reference here for recording purposes, as the rituals related to this reference have recently been thrust into the forefront of pop culture by the 2019 horror movie known as Midsummer. That's M-I-D-S-O-M-M-A-R. For characters like Benson, this reference is most strongly linked to the Roman Catholic celebration of spring on May 1st, which is as much a celebration of the Virgin Mary, our Queen of May, as it is about the coming of spring. Of course, the custom, including dances around the Maypole, the crowning of a young girl as the May Queen, and so forth, all have their roots as many of these things later appropriated by Christianity, <laughs> and Germanic pagan traditions, with links to the concept of the world axis, the axis mundi, the world tree, and so forth. Whether the older traditions required multiple human sacrifices or not, as implied by the recent Midsummer movie, is not certain. But what we do know is that a maypole featured quite prominently in the music video for Men Without Hats smash single, Safety Dance. On to the story. The host panel wins me over with its diving-suited skeleton setting the underwater table for us. And there are multiple Alcala-like touches in the art throughout that put me in a good mood at baseline. For specific art spotlights, I'll go with the diving scenes on page 2, panel 5, and page 7, panel 1, the latter with the addition of the bodies of the fallen and the somewhat bemused fish present, and on page 4, panel 2, featuring the besieged raft as it heads out, having finally collected Mr. Benson. Great sound effects work in that panel, too. 
As for the story itself, it was perfectly fine. I did find that the panel spent on Benson's civilian life added some unnecessary drag to the pacing. One, after the war, Benson returned to the lagoon is all we really needed there, in my opinion. Everything else worked fine for me, and I really liked the artwork overall, so good stuff. Holy blue falcon, Batman. But <laughs> wait, they return to that reference. This guy just might be the most reprehensible pile of garbage to ever grace these pages. And we've seen some pretty reprehensible piles of garbage. How many hundreds of guys died so this guy could line his pockets on something that ended up being worthless? Dying in the blast might have been enough of a comeuppance for Benson, but living as a broke cripple the rest of his days is a much better ending for a story with a curse vibe. I've never seen Taboo spelled T-A-B-U before now in the story, which is apparently an old common spelling. Two great panels, page seven, panel one, which Max also took, and page five, panel one of the Marines that paid the price, then and now, for Benson's betrayal. And seeing as how I'm up next on the APO Weird War Tales, I will just keep on flapping my lips and everything. I'm going to go with Joe Malloy's missive. Address not given. Dear Joe, wow, a full issue of current war tales, World Wars 1 and 2. That's something I can really sink my teeth into. Sometimes it's hard to visualize the savagery of past conflicts with weapons that have long been outdated. But wait a second, the first two stories were all too familiar. The common en enemy and flying coffins both stress the point that war is eternal and that those who engage in it are lost. But the redundancy ruined the effect. Well, I like the time, if not the topic. Try again. And Joe responded with, we try to mix and match the balance of times and topics to best effect. And while we regret failing in number 34, it does show that we're right in normally avoiding more than one war from any given century. Yeah, and then his point is made when this letter is printed in an issue that has nothing but World War II stories. Fail. <laughs> and I'll just add that there's two other letters in this column. There's one from George Voloff of New Orleans and Jason Daniels of San Francisco, California. And both of them go on to complain about that exact thing. Too much focus on the modern time period and not enough prehistory or far future stories. Malloy liked the focus on modern times, but found the story content messages to be repetitive and so forth. So kind of a theme going through this whole letters column of wanting focus on different time periods and things like that. So, you know, you got to wonder if they were just assaulted with that kind of stuff or someone collecting the stuff for this column went, hey. Yeah, there's a common thread. We'll throw them all up in there. So I like when that happens. The uh, Weird War Tales APO letters page having been surveyed, we're going to move on to our spotlighted ads for the issue, and I'll kick it off with a really cool one, in my opinion. We've got this big ad for the amazing world of DC Comics. It says, it's here, the fifth fabulous issue of Amazing World of DC Comics. Now, what this was, was an in-house kind of a self-produced fan magazine of the mid-1970s. It ran 17 issues. The fanzine featured DC characters and their creators and was exclusively available through mail order. Primarily text articles with occasional strips and comics features, it offered a great deal of insight into Bronze Age DC corporate and creative culture. Now, I have a few issues of it. I picked them up at the Outer Limits in Waltham, Massachusetts. Great comic shop. 
say hi to Steve Higgins when you go in there. The ad itself has a great image of six members of the JSA. Well, kind of, sort of. You got the Spectre, Hawkman with the cowl mask, not any version of the bird helmet at all. Jay Garrick, the original Flash. You've got Wonder Woman, who looks kind of peeved to be posing for a photo. Looks like she'd rather be anywhere else. The Alan Scott Green Lantern and Ma Hunkle, the original Red Tornado, complete with cooking pot helmet and red. They're like thermal underwear, red long underwear for a majority of her costume. Fantastic character. And two of Sheldon Mayer's most famous characters to people who are into DC history, Sugar and Spike, the two little toddler infant type characters that speak in gibberish normally. But here they're saying, don't forget Sugar and Spike, we're here too. There's a, a little blurb in the ad that says, meet Sheldon Mayer, the man behind the golden age. Profile of editor Murray Boltonoff, the exciting conclusion to the Batman newspaper strip. News, exclusives, and much more ready for mailing March 15th. And I got to tell you, that sounds bombastic and everything, but I have like three issues of this, and they're all cover to cover, just great reads and incredible insights into the times. Like very, very current and kind of open about things. Like they don't really censor the interviews. These guys are just saying what they feel, even though it's a corporate publication. So fascinating reads. So I got a picture of that ad here, and I also dug up the actual cover of issue five, which is great. The background image, which is kind of the superhero-related part of it, has a fence that says, five cents to see three celebrities. And you got a little kid dressed up as Green Lantern, a little girl as Wonder Woman, and a little boy as The Flash, again, with a nod to, like, the Red Tornado. He's got, like, some kind of a kitchen implement, like a strainer or something on his head for The Flash's helmet. And behind them, with their arms crossed, leaning on the top of the fence and smiling, are the actual Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and Flash. So just an excellent golden age style image and then looming in the front of the cover image is a inexplicably grim looking Shelley Mayer <laughs> looks like a, a portrait of like Sigmund Freud or something Sheldon Mayer the man behind the golden age it's just for the, con the contrast between those two images alone it's great even if the, this you know the superhero image with the three kids is charming as hell like a lot of stuff that Shelley touched I mean, his stuff is, he's not someone whose name you hear a lot, but he really is a major part of what you would love about Golden Age comics and, and, and into the Silver Age too. So I'm not really sure how Shelley is the man behind the Golden Age, but I'd sure like to grab this issue and read it anyway, because it's one of the many I don't have. So there you go. That's my rambling enthusiastic spotlighted ads. Sometimes I'm a very positive person and I'll, I'll give Rich some space now. <laughs> dog tags. Decorate yourself with these great army type dog tags. Each comes with its own special message displayed on tarnish resistant tags suspended on a 24 inch chain. Choose the ones which say it best for you and yours at only 125 each or order several at these money saving discounts. Three for two ninety five, any five for four fifty, any seven for five ninety five, or get your choice of any ten for only seven fifty. And man, if <laughs> if any ad in this entire book says nineteen seventies, 
it's this one. I guess you can love the army. I mean, the examples on some of these tags are just to be, you have to see him to believe him. I'm his because he deserves the best. Love spreads germs. Quick, make me sick. I'm a sex maniac in case of emergency. Give me a kiss. Kiss me. You'll love it. USA loving team. I'm the real thing. Stop. I love it. I'll make you an offer he can't refuse. Love me. Squeeze me. Take me home. I care. Why don't you? And just on and on. <laughs> Order now. Detach and mail. Romar sales. Department RS 1268. 380 Madison Avenue, New York, New York, 10017. Had 50 cents per order for postage and handling. I mean, <laughs> like I said, man, ah, the 70s. <laughs> I, rem I, and I actually remember seeing, you know, crap like this in books as I was picking them up, you know, back in the day. I, when I saw this one in the book, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I got to go with this one for multiple obvious, <laughs> multiple obvious reasons. Hey, it's it's a little stolen valor, a little uh, grade school Valentine's Day card kind of vibe. I mean, where could you go wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic. The ads in this issue, it was like almost foregone conclusions which ones the two of us were going to pick. Both of them fantastic, in my opinion. Uh, just the dog tag thing was, as you said, so endemic of the era that you couldn't have designed it better yourself in retrospect if you tried. So... Spotlighted ads, very satisfyingly out of the way. We'll move on to a little section we call Got Any Last Words? All around great issue. And despite the fact it was the shortest story with only barely average art, a point with Doom got me with the You remembered me from the first time, Lariat. Get my nod as my favorite tale, in addition to the personal connections. Keeper. Yeah, damn fine issue, I say. As usual, uh, there's a lot of negative stuff peppered into my comments, but uh, that's just how I bend. But I enjoyed the heck out of this issue. I like Spoils of War gets the prize from me. I enjoyed the other stories too, but maybe I just really like stories with diving shenanigans. You know, I think I, every time we've had underwater stories, I feel like they've been picked as my favorite. So it's just a thing. And I'm a guy that gets seasick real easy. So I, I loved Jacques Cousteau's TV show back in the day, but the first time I got on the ocean, finally, I found out, yeah, you're not going to be doing this for a living. So it, it's just like some kind of unrequited love thing with me, I think. So all that out of the way, the issue's wrapped up. We're going to move on to our dead letter office where we take a look at interactions with our listeners and so forth. We remind you that the Weird War podcast PX exists on redbubble.com. Be the fourth or so person to buy some stuff with our logo on it, will you? Come on. It's redbubble.com. Search for Weird Warriors podcast. You'll have yourself an excellent time. So for now, I hand over the reins of the dead letter office to uh, that guy over there. I think his name is Rich or something. I, I think we're up to five, actually. <laughs> the next person will be number five not counting people for whom we have bought things for but yes i posted on the facebook page a link to a nick caputo blog about weird war tales originally posted in 2013 bill mooney weighed in about dick Ayers. a better example of Ayers' work in wwt would have been the novel length an appointment with destiny written by steve engelhart with Ayers pencils and akala's inks the best example of Tom Sutton's work in the title was the novel length The Iron Star, written by Bob Toomey. Both stories were examples of how WWT would have been better off as a bi-monthly 
or even a quarterly, if that's what it took to ensure the high standard that the novel Linux stories never failed to live up to. I replied with, as I think I mentioned in our first special mission, War as Hell, featuring Ayers art. I met Ayers at a New York con and got him to sign a bunch of books, including Sergeant Rock 342, which was an autobiographical story of his time as a ground crewman of a B-26 squadron during World War II. I gave him a salute, and he missed it. We might get to issue 50's appointment in 2023, which is actually Ayers' first appearance in the pages of WWT. Looking forward to it. There's a photo of said page in Yelp. Bill then comes back with, that was a nice gesture on your part. Thank you both for your service. He just reminded me of a Sergeant Fury story I read when I was a kid. They were on an air base somewhere, and they were walking past a crew member who was painting a mural on the side of a B-26. Happy Sam Sawyer said to the guy, and I'm paraphrasing, nice job, Ayers. When I get back to the States, I'm going to write some stories about the Howlers. How would you like to draw them? Even as a nine-year-old, I couldn't miss the apparent reference to Dick's military service. A nice inside inside joke and a fine tribute. <sighs> Damn it. Now I had to go look for that. <laughs> Thanks to additional info from Bill, I found the two panels in question in Sergeant Fury 124. Check the album. Another incredible exchange with our fan base. Thanks, Bill. I'd also like to give some quick love to our other Facebook pages that cover the DC war genre. Go check out the Sergeant Rock Facebook fan club, DC War Comics, and War Comics slash Sergeant Rock slash Weird War Tales slash Blazing Combat, etc. to help you buy in your War Comics jonesing. Obviously, we are contributors to those pages. We've also made friends with Weird World War II on Facebook, a group that focuses on gaming but loves all manner of Weird World War II stuff. Go check them out, too. Yeah, and by we contribute rich means rich because you know he's like involved and stuff but that's that's a great example that whole section there by rich of of what you guys are missing if you don't check out the facebook page like we get a lot of interaction there a lot of back and forth uh mostly with rich because he runs the fb page and it's really become quite the hop in place, I got to say. So kudos to Rich. Kudos to everybody who jumps in and has conversations with us on that page and kind of keeps the spirit alive in between episodes. It's fantastic. So for my part, I'm going to mention the people who stopped by to say hey to us on various social medias. Facebook, we're back on Twitter at Weird War Pod because someone talked me into going back on the Twitter. It was, uh, spoiler alert, it was Martin Gray. So I said, what the heck? I'll go back. And uh, yeah, it hasn't been a bad experience over there going back again. So again, look us up at Weird War Pod over there if Twitter is your preferred social media pain of choice. And over on the social medias, we got the high sign from Magazines and, Mon- uh, Magazines and Monsters, one of Billy D. Licious's podcasts, Checkered Pass podcast, our good buddies, the Checkered Chums, Dan Brown, Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics, Daniel Rapoli, Luke Giaconetti from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, Dave Marchand, Billy D. and his civilian identity, Tim DeForest, the aforementioned Bill Mooney, and David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast stopped by. Martin Gray, the, uh, again, aforementioned person who dragged me back over to Twitter, uh, made a comment about our Valentine's Day episode, GI Sweethearts number 45, which hopefully we'll have some more email to read about next time, because we got none right now is all I'm saying. Martin says, best episode ever. Do we really have to wait a year for another? 
And can we have the show back on Twitter? Ha! See, what did I tell you? You're missing out on loads of shares. And I said, okay, Martin, go check at Weird War Pod. Risen from the grave, now with zero followers. So that right there, and, and all kinds of bloody detail that I know you wanted, is, is the story of our return to the Muskverse, such as it is. We got shares also from Magazines and Monsters and from my buddy Ross Aiken at Stop Let's Team Up at JSA4E on Twitter. Look up Stop Let's Team Up on Facebook. One of my newer favorite podcasters who's just kicking out the jams lately with a few sub shows under his heading. He's just every every day he has something new coming out. So there we go. And since we're back over on Twitter, uh, we did get a few high signs. I said zero followers, but that changed pretty quickly. We got SHP Comics. The Checkered Past found us over there. Iowa's Joe. That's Joe Crawford from Iowa with his own podcast, The 21st Century Boys. Heroes United stopped by. JSA Dignity, a great Justice Society of America account. And our constant buddy, Kirk Spencer, at Big Five Army over on Twitter was there to welcome us back. Retweets we got over there were Heroes United and of course Kirk Spencer. What we got here, man? You got like a little something else from Martin too? Yeah, when I um, he made a comment underneath uh, the photo of Patsy Lang from the GI Sweethearts uh, album, and he made a great Barbara Stanwyck comparison. And yeah, I had to find a photo, and yeah, I see exactly what the hell he was talking about <laughs> so i added a robert stanwick photo to this episode's album so you can see what he was talking about agreed martin <laughs> yeah see all we had to do was a romance comics issue and all of a sudden martin is like completely on us man so <laughs> i had a feeling that some people would be uh, would have their their antenna raised by that. Even though Martin, you know, is is a war comics person too. I was just like, man, that that romance issue, uh, that romance episode really hit people. So you know, it, it's been good to see. And like Rich said, haha, I get I get my wish once a year. As long as we're doing this, we get to do a romance comics issue. So <laughs> at the end of the day, it's all my. <laughs> it, is. it is that's what makes it so wonderful <laughs> just so enjoyable to me now meanwhile over on gmail where you can write us even if your name isn't jason zeller you can write us over at weird warriors podcast at gmail.com i promise i check the thing i even write back to you you know i mean maybe that's what's keeping people from writing in but hey right here in our inbox this time around jason zeller founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, as I will always mention, wrote in about our special mission covering the next five and about our episode covering Weird War Tales number 35. So he's way ahead of you folks, all right? He enjoyed both episodes, most of the story content of the issue, of the issues covered. But most importantly, he said this. Oh, yeah. I forgot to say in the last podcast on the next five that I really enjoyed Max doing the ghostly sailor voice. Classic Max. Good job. So you know that Jason is a man of culture, refinement, and taste. There's proof. So with all that out of the way and indisputably stated, we're going to move on to uh, 
something Rich likes to do to you guys at the end of every show. Give you a little teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales number... Wait, what? A TDY assignment? Jail May. The Barry Allen Flash gets trapped in World War II and fights alongside the Blackhawks during the Battle of the Bulge in the Brave and the Bold 28? Yes! The Weird Warriors podcast has been invited to take part in a month-long podcast crossover event from 2007's The Brave and the Bold series. And this was the issue we selected for obvious reasons. The Blackhawks came up once before in conversation. Here's your chance. Tune in for some first-time superhero action. How can you resist? It's JL May, which is a legendary podcast crossover series for many reasons. And they even decided to invite us this time around. And like like Rich said, you get the Blackhawks, you get Barry Allen Flash. I won't give away too much more of it, but it's it's going to be cool, people. So until we get to that episode and, and our first appearance, and, you know, who knows, possibly last, in a multi-podcast crossover, as long as we don't break all the China, we'll see. Uh, until that time comes around, Rich and I will keep our heads from swelling too much and we'll remain the weird warriors. We will we will try to stay the Batlin bros. We will always be the Weird Warriors podcast and we will promise to make war. No more. Mm-hmm.